0: J D Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J D Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatley. This is First Move, and here's what you need to know: Powell's pricing pressures the Fed Governor testifies before Congress today. Climate committed, the EU unveiling a multi year green transformation plan. And Weville revoked, the ransomware gang disappears from the internet. It's Wednesday, let's make a move. Welcome to the program. It's a special French first move this Bastille Day. It's a day of liberty, equality, fraternity, as well as j credibility, bank earnings agility and inflation susceptibility, perhaps. We also have a magnifique list of guests on tap as well. We'll be talking transformative tech, but also the challenges of operating in South Africa, given the current tensions and protests with the CEO of South African food delivery startup Yebo Fresh. Plus, the CEO of cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike on the mystery of ransomware gang Revil. The hacker's web page has literally vanished online. But the question is, are there days of terrorizing big business over? Well, we'll discuss later. Plus, inflation fears certainly not over for consumers nor investors. U.S. futures are higher right now, despite a fresh, fresh price punch. Just released numbers that show wholesale inflation spiking more than 7% year over year last month. The base effect, remember, of a year ago, as we were discussing yesterday, critically important to remember here. But Pirelli patient and all puissant Fed chair, powerful. Fred Chair Jay Powell, testifying before Congress today, says in his prepared statement that he's still not ready to change policy. He's still counting on inflation being transitory. We'll discuss that too. Europe losing ground meanwhile and climbing a Mont Blanc-sized mountain of pricing concerns too. UK consumer inflation numbers show prices creeping above central bank targets. And in Asia, China closed 1% lower as investors brace for key growth data, GDP data out tomorrow. In the meantime, U.S. corporate earnings season heating up like a good flambe. Citigroup, Bank of America and Wells Fargo all reporting solid profits, but slower fixed income trading, lower interest rates and sluggish loan demand put some pressure on results. Let's take a look at all of this in our drivers. Time to go. Christine Romans joins me now. I tell you what, Christine, nothing snail-like about you, nor about the pricing pressures that the U.S. economy is facing, though. Again, I reiterate the base effects relative to what we were going through this time a year ago are very important when we're talking about rising prices.
2: It really is. Look, inflation's running hot. There's no question there. And it's hotter than many had expected at this point. But you're coming from the lost summer of 2020 when things stopped. In fact, when things cratered, uh, you had a recession last summer. So now you're seeing these bounce backs that look very dramatic. And certainly if you're going to the gas pump in the United States, you can feel it every week when you're uh, buying goods. And certainly the lower income you are, the more you're feeling these price increases. But how long will it last and will it work itself out? That, Julia, is the big debate of our time right now. You have some people weighing in like Larry Summers and Larry Fink. And Jamie Dimon from Morgan Chase saying, look, inflation is going to be a worse problem than the Fed is thinking. This is going to be a problem. And many others, including many Fed officials, who say, no, once you get supply chains uh, worked out, this will start to uh, go back to normal. There's also this big debate about how for 20 years or so we've had very, very low inflation. And a little bit of inflation here is just something we're not really used to. But seriously, the inflation debate has been fascinating and the stock market continues to just shrug it off, maybe a little blips here and there in the bond market, quite frankly, as well. That's where we're really watching to see if there are any big changes in expectations in the bond market.
1: Yeah. And we're simply not seeing it at this stage, but it is starting to feed into consumer expectations of yes. where prices are going. Do I buy today? Because I think that something's going to be more expensive in the future versus hanging on for purchases. And that's important when it comes to the thinking of the Federal Reserve and Jay Powell. And clearly, I think in front of Congress over the next two days, he is going to be asked these questions of congressmen. Are Are you right to hold off here and
2: assume that all this is going to go away in ease? Yeah, what will Jay say? That is is the big question. I can rhyme a little bit too. I'm not as good at rhyming as you are in alliteration, but <laughs> I got a bit try. more time though. <laughs> <laughs> but I will try. But really, we've seen his testimony. You've seen his testimony. He will talk later today. Uh, he will be questioned, of course, about will, how how convinced is he that this will all uh, be transitory, and what will inflation look like sometime next year. But remember, this year, and he'll say this: this year will be the best economic growth in the United States in decades, in decades. Uh, this is a roaring back from um, the crisis we had last year. Very strong performance in the U.S. economy. Uh, Jamie Dimon, of Morgan Chase, also saying, look, consumers are feeling good. Their stock prices are up. Their house prices are up. Their savings are up. Their incomes and wages are up. For them, the pandemic is in the rearview mirror. I- I'm not sure we can say it's completely in the rearview mirror. You know, we still have thousands of people contracting the virus, and uh, you have the Delta variant, which is still a, a risk for the-, for the economy and the stock market overall. But the inflation debate certainly Fascinating here, as you try to, as we we just sort of have a blueprint, right, for for this kind of a for this kind of a recovery from a a health pandemic.
1: As we always say, forecasting this has been impossible all the way through and remains so. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Going green, the European Union unveiling its most ambitious plan yet to tackle climate change, with its central goal to cut carbon emissions by 55 percent by 2030. That's compared with 1990 emissions levels. Anna Stewart joins us with more. Anna, I think we have to put this in perspective in terms of the ambition here. It puts Europe way ahead of other (laughs) developed nations, admittedly, if they can fulfill and follow through on these ambitions. Perhaps not so great on the uh, the marketing of this. The fit for 55 seems to have been quietly dropped. Um, Give us the (laughs) highlights, please. Yeah, we're now calling it the Green Deal, Julia, which I much prefer. I can remember that one. Um, (laughs) This is
3: really ambitious. The Europe, sorry, the EU wants to be the first climate neutral continent in the world. So that's by 2050. Now, this package overall sees, well, the cost of non-renewable fuel being hiked up. We're talking about taxation. Also, um, big cuts on carbon trading limits uh, and also just a huge focus on transport. Now, we were talking about this yesterday with the Volkswagen uh, announcement and it's exactly really as we expected. Transport accounts for over a fifth of all emissions from the EU. So that is a huge focus. They want to reduce it by 90% by 2050. So for cars, what they're saying is new cars by 2030 will have to reduce their emissions by 55%. And just five years later, by 2035, by 100%. Similar targets for vans as well. So essentially, Julie, what we're saying here is I buy best combustion engines, Hello electric, and also actually hydrogen, a big focus there too. For airlines, a push for sustainable jet fuel. I thought this one was really interesting. Currently airlines in the EU use just 0.05 percent of sustainable fuel. From 2030, the EU wants to make uh, some sort of sustainable blended fuel the only option for airlines refueling in EU airports. And they want to oblige uh, fuel suppliers to increase the blend of sustainable they have from 2030 right through to 2050. So quite a lot in there. How they go about it, though, the detail yet to come.
1: And that's the crucial point. I mean, we spoke to the EU's climate envoy, Franz Timmermans, last week, and he openly admitted they were going to get so much pushback as a result of this. I mean, how easily is this going to be done? Two challenges for me. One, the debate within the 27 nations and the EU parliament over what this looks like, and then translating uh, this into policy, ultimately, to bring those ambitions down. It's ambitious, Anna. It's going to be incredibly challenging to fulfil, whether it's needed or not. And that debate rages on, too.
3: Nothing like a challenge. There's the practical aspects. What is the balance of carrot and stick for each industry? Does it actually help them transition? Does it protect jobs? Or does it do the exact opposite? And as you say, the politics here will be so difficult. This is a proposal from the EU Commission. And needs go through the Parliament and the Council. We know that this will be more costly, this transition, for some countries than others. Well, how's that going to work with an EU member state voting for something that will actually cost its economy dearly? Then you've got the issue of the Parliament. We know a big chunk of MEPs don't actually feel these proposals go far enough. On top of which, you can expect any vote on the Green Deal to become, as all votes in the EU are, a proxy for other issues, whether they're talking about migrants, whether we're talking about rule of law, this could go on. But you have to applaud the ambitious targets being set here. Julia?
1: Yes. And the detail, unlike other nations, the UK, just to Mm. name one. Anna Stewart. (laughs) Thank you very much for that. All right, let's move on. Hackers hacked. The cyber hackers known as Revil have mysteriously vanished from the Internet. The Eastern European ransomware group infamously attacked meat suppliers JBS Foods just a few months ago, among others. Matthew Chance joins us now from Moscow. Matthew, uncanny timing in light of the discussions between President Biden and President Putin, of course, on tackling cybersecurity threats. But what do we we know? Just give us the details on the disappearance.
4: Uh, well, I mean, we, we know that the uh, that Revol, this uh, collective, this criminal collective uh, ransomware group has disappeared from the internet you know the sites that that are there to negotiate with the people they they victimize or attack uh, the 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 infrastructure that is there for uh, people to uh, to make payments to the, to the criminal gang to release their data uh, that's been taken offline as well it's all sort of disappeared uh, we don't know why it, well we don't know why it's disappeared but you're right the timing of it is interesting because it was just well last month that uh, President Biden along with uh, you know discussed with President Putin the uh, national security issue of cyber crime uh, with him in their face-to-face meeting, the presidential summit in Geneva. There was a phone call about the issue just last week from President Biden to uh, President Putin as well. And so, you know, it's tempting, isn't it, to to think that the the Russians have, you know, heeded the warnings from the United States uh, and have acted to crack down on these Criminal gangs that are, are said to be operating from uh, Russian territory, but that's not something obviously that the Russians are admitting. Uh, we spoke to the Kremlin earlier today, uh, and they say they've got no idea what this group is. Never mind, you know what the circumstances are uh, around its its disappearance. And of course, it's not the only possibility. It's also possible that the United States could have acted to try and take these well to to take these cyber criminals offline. And it's also possible that the criminals themselves could have decided the you know the heat's just too hot. You know, the pressure's too great. And they just decided to, uh, you know, pack up their operation and, and go somewhere else. We may see them reemerge in some other form uh, later on. So, um, yeah, you know, interesting development. The fact that cyber crime has been a major talking point between Russia and the United States. And the fact that one of the most prominent, you know, kind of perpetrators of that crime has now disappeared from the Internet, I think is noteworthy and significant.
1: Yeah, but they haven't half come under scrutiny. To your broader point, there's so many options of what might have happened here. Matthew Chance, thank you for laying that out for us. And we'll continue this discussion later on in the show when I'll be joined by George Kurtz, the CEO of CrowdStrike, a global leader in cybersecurity, to get their take on what may have happened here. Okay, for now, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Cuban officials say a man died during clashes with police on Monday. It's the first confirmed death amid the anti-government protests which erupted on Sunday. Activists say more than 100 people have been detained or reported missing since Sunday. Patrick Ottman joins us now from Havana. Patrick, what have we seen today? Yeah, I was wondering whether you could hear him even if I couldn't. But no, we have lost him. We will try and get him back later on in the show. But for now, thank you to Patrick Ottman there and we'll continue. The death toll has risen to at least 92 in Monday's hospital fire in southeastern Iraq. Officials believe the fire started after oxygen tanks and an intensive care unit treating COVID-19 patients exploded. Iraq's president has blamed the incident and a similar one in Baghdad in April on, quote, corruption and mismanagement. Pope Francis has been released from a hospital in Rome ten days after undergoing surgery for colon diverticulitis. The Vatican says the Pope stopped by the Basilica of St. Mary Major on the way home where he gave thanks for his successful procedure and prayed for those who were sick. You're watching First Move, more to come. Welcome back to First Move, an action-packed day on Wall Street filled with news on prices, profits and j Powell coming up to futures solidly higher. Despite another day of inflationary sticker shock, U.S. producer prices rising a greater than expected 7.3% year over year last month following that hot read, of course, on consumer prices yesterday too. Fed Chair j Powell sticking to his script, however, he's set to tell Congress that today inflationary pressures will ease. Shares of major U.S. carriers are set for takeoff too. Delta reporting its first profit since the pandemic today. American is pre-announcing a slight pre-tax second quarter profit too. Apple shares meanwhile set to, record, set to rise to record highs. Reports say Apple is ordering a greater than expected number of new generation iPhones from suppliers this year, signalling hopes for high demand. Apple also reportedly beating up its fintech offerings. Reports say it's in talks with Goldman Sachs to launch a buy now, pay later service. Okay, let's return to Cuba. Officials say a man died during clashes with police on Monday. It's the first confirmed death amid the anti-government protests which erupted on Sunday. Patrick Ottman joins us from Havana. And Patrick, I think you can now hear me. Yes, and we can see you moving. That's great. Patrick, just talk us through what people are saying amid these protests. What do they want? What are they asking for?
5: Well, you know it 's so many things they want to be able to go and, and buy food and not have to wait hours for it they They want to uh in the cuban summer heat ha- have power so they have fans or or AC and are not sweltering in their homes. Uh, they would like uh, the relatives to be able to send them assistance directly and not have uh, the Cuban government uh, converted into Cuban pesos from dollars, uh, Cuban pesos of course being a, a worthless currency uh, outside of Cuban and a heavily devalued currency here right now. Uh, so a lot of people, uh, it's very simple, uh, they just say that they want to be able to, to, to live uh, with uh, without the um, restrictions and difficulties that Cubans face every day. For other people, it's much more complicated. They would like to be able to directly pick their own leaders, have multiple political parties, have freedom of speech, have freedom uh, of the right to, to assembly, something they do not have. Uh, it's important to remember uh, that while the go- Cuban government says they're cracking down on these protests because they became violent, Uh, There are also people uh, being arrested uh, simply for peacefully protesting. Uh, That is something uh, that Cubans do not have the right to do. They do not have the right uh, to uh, protest against their government, call for change. Uh, And that is what many people have done. Uh, We are seeing now images of Cuban police uh, rounding people up, going house to house, forcibly arresting them. The Cuban government says that, that these protesters were were violent, but we're uh, certainly seeing a, a high use of force uh, as uh, more and more people are being arrested. Yesterday, uh, one activist group said uh, over 100 people have been arrested. Uh, the Cuban government has not said how many people have been arrested how many people have been injured Uh, one man we do know uh, was killed in clashes with police Uh, the Cuban government said uh, some of those authorities were also injured in these clashes but but right now uh, there's a, a large scale effort to tamp down on these protests and keep them from happening again.
1: Julia Patrick great to have you with us thank you so much for that report there Not the only place, of course, where we're seeing protests. In South Africa, at least 72 people have now died during violent protests and looting. Authorities have arrested more than a 1,000 people but have struggled to maintain order. For almost a week, demonstrations have been clashing with police while looters have gutted stores and set some buildings on fire. CNN's David McKenzie joins us now from Johannesburg. David, we saw you on the streets yesterday and you were showing us a building that was on fire. What have you seen throughout this morning and at the hours of the early afternoon?
6: Well, Julia, just in this part of the country, utter devastation in many malls and shops and uh, just places of business across Johannesburg that have been ransacked, looted and destroyed. We went to one mall, which is the lone standing mall in Soweto, really the pride of that part of uh, this Uh, province that vigilantes had to uh, protect overnight to stop people from gaining access. It does seem to have calmed down somewhat at this part of the country. In Durban, though, these are the images uh, of a warehouse, uh, a clothing warehouse, and a courier company uh, totally gutted uh, and on fire, people lining up to try and uh, get food, some level of panic buying, I think, Uh, but there is also a sense uh, that the lawlessness continues in at least parts of KwaZulu-Natal province where the authorities haven't been able to uh, clamp down this on this. And it's been several days of this. Uh, even if they manage to get it under control, uh, like the military uh, and police want to, it will be very a very long time till these communities recover. Julia?
1: Yeah, it will. David McKenzie, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that report. Now, as South Africa struggles to restore order in parts of the country, some businesses, including a breakthrough startup called Yebo Fresh, are being forced to temporarily halt operations. The Cape Town-based food delivery company has been growing at an incredible speed, delivering more than 85,000 groceries during the country's first strict lockdown against COVID-19. And joining us now, the founder and CEO of Yebo Yebo Fresh. Jessica Boonstro. Jessica, fantastic to have you with us on the show. Let's just take a step back and tell us what you've been doing for the last two years delivering groceries in townships in in South Africa.
7: Thank you, Julian. So, Yemofesh is an e-commerce platform, as you said, that uh, is uniquely tuned to South Africa's townships. Our young company, we started only three years ago in my garage and have grown particularly fast indeed during the, the last lockdown. Um, today we are operating in two areas in uh, Greater Cape Town and in Johannesburg, and we serve um, a wide range and very rapidly growing range of customers from families who traditionally struggle to get access to stores. Uh, if you don't have a car, you have to travel quite far. Uh, but also uh, container shops, local local uh, stores, um, as well as community organisations, church groups, uh, NGOs, uh, schools, ECDs, etc.
1: And a lot of the employees that you were hiring as well, they came from the communities that you're serving. Absolutely. We make a point
7: of hiring local people from the communities that we serve, also because they have a better understanding than anyone of what's happening on the ground, what the requirements are, where it's safe to go, and how we make sure that we deliver the best possible
1: service to this unique market. And explain the unique market, because I think for for our our audience that either don't live in South Africa or don't understand what a township actually means. Just explain, you know, the kind of areas, the communities that you are serving, because there's there's a lot of misunderstanding about what this represents and truly as a retail customer, what this represents.
7: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you could almost say that there's two South Africans, the more affluent market, the upper market and the townships, where actually a very large part of the majority lives. Um, so these are the less affluent areas that um, often struggle with challenges um, like um, lack of infrastructure, lack of access to data, and sometimes, unfortunately, like today with a crime and protests.
1: So explain the decision to suspend operations. Is that in order to protect your employees simply because you can't access these areas now that are being disrupted by protests? Just give me an, ex- an understanding of, of what the company is facing.
7: Yes, well, this is a difficult decision because, of course, um, our company is a lifeline. And actually, we grew so fast last year because we were the party that actually understands how to navigate the intricacies of the township area. Um, And we will be looking to to restore deliveries as soon as possible. We're actually already doing that in Cape Town um, and in Johannesburg, given the very warm relationships we have with the communities. We're looking to get back on the ground as soon as possible. But indeed, the situation is currently quite volatile. Um, and ironically, of course, as large stores get looted, as the smaller stores are struggling, um, one of the ways to get access to food is by delivering it to people. Um, and fortunately, South Africans are some of the most creative and resilient people that I've ever met. Um, so we're already working together with the local networks, the community networks, with organizations, with other companies to make sure that we uh, restore those food infrastructures, including the smaller stores, get them back up and running as soon as possible to make sure that people get access to food, which is absolutely vital
1: at the moment. Of course. I mean, I'm sure your supplies as well, your grocery supplies are in a warehouse, either near or in these localities as well. As far as you know, your employees and your produce as well, that as you describe as a lifeline for, for many of these families and these businesses, that's all safe.
7: Thankfully, everyone is safe Um, on our team. We have kept the sales team uh, inside for a a few days, Um, but they're all very keen to get back out to make sure that we actually do our job, which is to make sure that we deliver where it's needed most. Um, Everything at the moment for the team seems to be safe. We're keeping very close contact with our communities and just making sure that we can get back out as soon as we can. And again, we're restoring those networks as we go at the moment.
1: You know, Jessica, there's a few things here. I mean, there's the, the sort of politics that the country's facing at the moment, and perhaps how these protests erupted. But there's also the challenges of COVID that, that many nations around the world have struggled with—the economic uh, consequences of lockdown, of shutdown, of illness. What do people need to understand about the economy and the economics of what South Africa is going through at this moment? In your mind,
7: well, honestly, I'm not sure I'm, I'm the best placed person to, to speak about that. Uh, It's such a complicated, multi-layered challenge that it isn't just COVID, it isn't just uh, the remains of apartheid, it isn't just the anger over Zuma, but it's all these layers on top of each other. Um, And interestingly, for example, where we see that the taxi companies are fighting each other in Cape Town, they're actually the ones protecting communities and protecting stores in Johannesburg. So very different organizations behave differently in different areas. Um, So a very complex society in South Africa, it surely is. Um, uh, again, what I'd like to emphasize is the resilience as well of the country. Uh, I have no doubts that, for example, small stores um, and local communities will work very hard to help each other get back up and running. Um, I thought the, what we saw during the last, um, last lockdown is how communities stepped up to help each other was incredible. Um, so yeah, it's both a very dangerous, very... A tricky situation, as well as one that, for me and the people that is to, um, there is a glimmer of hope that is in the people and their tremendous power to to make good things happen.
1: Yeah, you know, your emotional response and your heartfelt response makes you eminently qualified to respond to that question, Jessica. And um, fingers crossed, you get back up and running. Any sense of timing on that? You're just going to wait and see. Uh, as soon as it feels safe for your for your people, you'll you'll get back up there and, and getting support and food out to people.
7: Absolutely. A matter of days, um, literally days, no longer than that. And as mentioned, we're already reaching out to the communities and making sure that we deliver whenever we can. We're opening area by area, so we're not open everywhere. But in
1: many areas, we're already taking orders, we're already delivering. So that's going to happen very, very soon. It's via WhatsApp, so I think the message is just send a message and... Keep hoping and hopefully you'll be back up and running, as you say, very, very soon. Jessica, great to have you with us. Thank you. Absolutely. Founder and CEO of Yebo Fresh. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are ready for business this Wednesday. Call it midweek momentum. The major averages moving higher with tech at fresh records as investors shrug off a fresh round of hot inflation data. Fed Chair Jay Powell admitting in his prepared testimony before Congress today that inflation has increased markedly, but he's not yet ready to signal a change in Fed policy. So, inflation moving higher, so are pot stocks on fresh legalization hopes. U.S. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer set to unveil a bill today that would, among other things, allow pot firms to access. Banking services. And speaking of banks, shares of Citigroup, Bank of America and Wells Fargo are mixed after reporting their second quarter results. Bank of America revenues came in light as low interest rates pressured results, but Citigroup upbeat On further U.S. growth, it's releasing more than $1 billion that it set aside for bad loans during the worst of the pandemic. So following exactly what JP Morgan did yesterday as well. And that's the performance there. Now, we've been hearing in this hour already about the countries around the world currently in the grip of unrest, all hit hard by the pandemic and all lagging behind other nations when it comes to vaccination rates. As CNN's Nick Robertson explains, some people are laying the blame firmly at the door of their governments. From Cuba
8: to Haiti, South Africa to Lebanon, tinder-dry tensions are igniting. Crippled economies burdened by COVID-19 are partly to blame. In Cuba, angry citizens incensed by lack of food, medicine and freedom, as well as spiraling coronavirus infections, are getting beaten back by police for demanding the ouster of President Miguel Diaz-Canel. America. In a national broadcast, he blamed Cuba's economic woes on U.S. sanctions imposed under former President Donald Trump.
9: We explained to the Cuban people very clearly that we were about to enter a very rough period of time.
8: Reality is Cuba's weak economy and health care system is being brought to its knees by COVID-19 infections soaring only a little more than 16 percent of cubans fully vaccinated the united states the is watching with concern
10: uh, people deeply 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 tired uh, of the repression that has gone on for far too long tired of uh, the mismanagement of uh, the cuban economy tired of uh, the lack uh, of uh, of adequate food and, of course, an adequate response uh, to uh, the COVID pandemic.
8: Haiti also a concern for the US. The audacious assassination of President Jovenel Moise last week topped weeks of deadly street protests and fighting, fueled by poverty and factional infighting. The impoverished Caribbean nation, which has been an economic basket case for decades, saw street violence ramp up in recent weeks. Concurrent with a spike in COVID-19 cases in late June. The floor. In South Africa, where COVID-19 infections have been spiking and vaccination rates are low, the economic inequalities are high. The army has been brought in to quell deadly rioting, triggered by the jailing of former President Jacob Zuma on contempt of court charges. And Lebanon, too, is hitting a crisis, exacerbating pre-existing tensions of poor COVID readiness. protest and anger ever-present as rocketing inflation, rolling power outages, royal passions. The nation reeling from the economic impact of decades of Syrian civil war next door, compounded by years of political infighting and to cap it all, a port blast last summer, shredding much of central Beirut. And Iraq this week became the latest country where tinder-dry frustrations combusted as they touched the nation's war and Covid-weary population. Oxygen tanks for treating Covid-19 patients at a hospital exploded, killing more than 90 people. Within hours, nearby residents took to the streets, demanding better from their government. Living with COVID-19 has become not just a way of life, but a salutary warning for leaders everywhere. Nick Robertson, CNN, London.
1: A warning that the richest nations in the world have to get vaccines to poor nations as soon as possible. Coming up on First Move, what made the Revil hackers retreat? We'll discuss with the CEO of cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike. That's next. Welcome back to First Move and a return to one of our top stories this hour, the mysterious retreat of infamous cyber hackers Revil from the Internet. The notorious group is, or was, just one part of a huge problem. There have been ransom demands for $164 million this year alone. That's according to cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike, which has been tracking ransomware attacks, among many other things. Joining us now is George Kurtz. He is the CEO of CrowdStrike. George, fantastic to have you on the show, as always. I've spoken to experts already in the last 24 hours who say there are three options here. The Russian government took them out, the U.S. government took them out, or they decided to hide simply due to the level of scrutiny they're under. What are your views on what happened?
10: Well, no doubt there's a a high level of scrutiny. We've seen the impact they've had. We've seen the dollars uh, raised by them. And uh, obviously ransomware is problematic for every company right now, every organization And, uh, you know, it certainly could be that they took themselves down and will reconstitute. They've done that in the past. They were part of a a former group that reconstituted themselves as our evil. And um, But you also have to look at the political uh, motivations behind this. Obviously, there is a tremendous amount of pressure from both the U.S. government and perhaps the Russian government to get this shut down, given... Uh, the the current conversations that each government is having with each other. So I think it remains to be seen. I'm surprised we haven't seen a real official announcement by any of those parties, uh, but we'll wait and see.
1: How easy is it for a nation state to deactivate cyber hackers like this? Because they were midway through negotiations with firms or businesses that they'd locked up data for and obviously were negotiating a ransom and all that infrastructure disappeared as well.
10: Well, that's part of the problem. If you're in the middle of negotiating with them and their infrastructure is down and and the shop is closed up, you're pretty much out of luck of getting your data back. Um, It depends. Uh, Certainly governments have the capabilities to be able to uh, disrupt their operations. And if they were asked by the Russian government, they probably would comply.
1: I mean, this could have happened after the colonial pipeline attack as well. Why now?
10: I, I Right now, I think there's just so much focus on this. We've seen that ransomware is more than just getting your computer infected. It actually impacts the availability of businesses, the resiliency. And I can tell you right now, I I speak to boards on a weekly basis. This is the the number one issue that most audit committees are talking about at the board level.
1: I.e., if we get attacked, do we pay the ransom?
10: Yeah, it's it's a big topic. If we get attacked, well, first, do we have protections like CrowdStrike and others? That should
1: be the first Second, conversation. Right?
10: Exactly. Let's protect ourselves. But if we do get attacked, do we pay it? Do we not pay it? What are the implications? Obviously, a lot of these, country, these uh, groups are in sanctioned countries. There's uh, implications in paying it, um, you know, uh, implications in having your data leaked. And it's one thing to have your data encrypted. But what they're doing right now, which is really insidious, is they're stealing the data, then encrypting it. And you have a choice. You can either pay and get your your, your data unencrypted, or if you don't pay and restore from backups, they will actually leak that data on dedicated websites, uh, which puts the company in an awkward and bad position.
1: You know, for me, the threats evolved in two ways, the acceleration of simply the number of attacks that we've seen, but also the sophistication, perhaps, of the, the individuals that are carrying this out. I mean, you have got a term for it. You call it big game hunting. What are we talking about when you use the term big game hunting?
10: Yeah, so big game hunting uh, is really the focused effort by these e-crime actors to target an entire company and encrypt all of their data. And if we just look back to, say, 2014, uh, when we see Cryptolocker, that was a prolific ransomware back then. Uh, That was a single machine that would get infected. You clicked on a link, it would be $500 in Bitcoin, and it would be an annoyance. Um, But it wasn't your entire organization. Well, the e-criminals have figured out that they can make much more money by actually getting into uh, an organization, almost using nation state tactics, right? very stealthy, Mm -hmm. distributing all of the ransomware and then activating it at one time, causing maximum damage and obviously increasing the ransom demands.
1: I mean, the key point that you made there, I think, is the nation state style actions that we're seeing. And suddenly it's gone from being an irritant for corporations, very potent at times, if it's uh, data being leaked or data being taken and potentially leaked to this point that you're making, which is now these significantly sized ransom. I mean, the average size is just over $6 million, I believe, according according to your data. But suddenly it's become a national security threat at the point where you're uh, disrupting energy supplies, at the point where you're disrupting food supplies, you become a national security threat. And perhaps that feeds into the timing, George, do you think that we saw here? Suddenly nation states are saying, okay, we have a problem with these individuals, real problems.
10: A real problem. Exactly. Again, it goes it goes past just being an annoyance and really impacting the the critical availability of infrastructure. And when that happens, you're certainly going to get government's attention. There's going to be conversations behind the scenes and maybe even action behind the scenes taken uh, to to bring these uh, bad actors uh, uh, down.
1: Gut feel, George, based on what you've seen from these guys, do they come back, even if it's in a different form?
10: They they always come back. You know it's Willie Sutton. You know go where the money is. Uh, if if they're gone entirely, which I doubt, they'll just be replaced by someone else. It's just that big of a business. Very low risk in getting caught, and a lot of money to be made by these e criminals.
1: If it was a government that took them out, here be it the Russian government, the U.S. government, or another government for for that matter, should they be honest in some regard about what they did to try and create some kind of deterrent effect? Because that seems to be lacking in all of this, whether it's the ransoms being paid or the inability, as you say, to end the whack-a-mole game with taking these guys down?
10: Well, it's interesting because if it was the U.S. government, uh, I I would have expected some announcement around this. And it still may come. It may not come. I I don't know. Uh, But at the end of the day, if someone at the government level was responsible, I would have expected some level announcement to create these, these lines that can't be crossed and to create the deterrent, as you say
1: but then potentially it would have had to have crossed boundaries with Russia.
10: Well, there's a lot of, uh, you know, political implications behind this, but, you know, the Internet crosses boundaries every day. So it's just a matter of what what are the norms of how we operate in the cyberspace world?
1: Yeah. And you protect your citizens. That's what you do. George, great to have you with us. George Kurtz, the CEO of CrowdStrike, saying that I'll be back. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. All right, coming up on First Move, Japan's fastest man tells CNN about his lifelong race for Olympic glory. Welcome back to First Move. And on the countdown to Expo 2020 in Dubai in October, it's going to showcase some of the brightest ideas that have evolved in the fight against COVID-19. Eleni Jokos looks at two projects making a difference to everyday lives.
11: From improving hand hygiene in Ghana to maintaining social distancing in Belgium, COVID-19 has posed many unique challenges. In this village, Project Maji, a social enterprise, has been providing solar-powered filtered water to communities since 2015. Despite water being a finite resource, they recognized the importance of hand-washing in preventing the spread of coronavirus and began educating communities on hand hygiene and developed a safe, simple and low-cost invention to help them do it.
4: What we've come up with is a hand-washing station where we have eliminated the single biggest weakness of a traditional hand-washing station, which is closing the tap after you've washed your hands uh, manually. So we came up with a foot-operated station, which is so easy to make and maintained by villagers.
11: More than 750 hand-washing stations called Maji Buckets and a soap distribution campaign have been deployed to 90 communities across Ghana, impacting, according to Project Maji, the lives of some 75,000 people. In this workplace in Antwerp, Maintaining social distancing caused its own challenge. At Atlas Copco, a compressor manufacturer, keeping its 3,000 workers safe was a top priority.
4: The most important, of course, was making sure we kept our distance of 1.5 meters at all times uh, to work in a safe way.
11: They turned to Belgian firm Lopos, who designed Safe Distance, a wearable device that uses alarms lights and vibrations to warn when social distancing is not being respected.
6: I think the most important thing is that we provided a technology that is configurable. Even when uh, government regulations change and it's not 1.5 but maybe 2 meters or 1.3, then all of our clients can just configure the technology and and continue to use it.
11: Loppa says it has dispatched 25,000 devices so far Now those behind Safe Distance and Mudgy Buckets are among a number of projects chosen by Expo 2020's Global Best Practice Program that will get a chance to showcase their innovations during the six-month event from October. Eleni Jokos, CNN,
1: Dubai. And another countdown now. Nine days remain until the Tokyo Olympics. As those summer games fast approach, there's of course a mixture of both excitement but also apprehension as Japan's COVID cases rise. CNN's Blake Essick has the latest on the games and he speaks to Japan's fastest man about his long race to the Olympics.
9: With a little more than a week to go before the Olympics, athletes continue to arrive, the Olympic Village is open, and there's now little doubt that these Olympic Games will go ahead. In fact, IOC President Thomas Bach said so Tuesday during an online interview with local media news outlet Kyoto News. Now, despite that reality, these games still remain deeply unpopular, especially with Tokyo now under its fourth state of emergency order. Now, with cases surging in the capital, the ongoing health and safety concerns aren't just affecting the public, they're also weighing heavily on athletes, including Japan's fastest man. Ryoti Yamagata has himself a set of wheels. Not literally, of course, but man, this guy can move. As a kid, Yamagata was always fast. Choosing to race against machines with actual wheels is motivation.
12: your body moves faster when you feel like you're being chased. So I trained by pretending to run away from cars. It's
9: a mentality he still carries today, one that's driven him to qualify for his third Olympics, where he'll run in the 100 meters and men's 100 meter relay, be named captain of Japan's Olympic team, and claim the title of Japan's fastest man.
12: It was a long road until I got my personal best. ...and ran under 10 seconds.
9: A long road littered with injuries and a little bit of luck. In 2019, you suffered a collapsed lung and leg pain. Last year, it was your right knee. Had the Olympics not been delayed a year... ...it's possible you wouldn't have qualified.
12: I wanted to believe that I'd make it to the Olympics... ...but my body wasn't able to keep up with my mind. I did think back then that if the Olympics had been held that year... ...I probably wouldn't have qualified. But Tokyo 2020 was postponed,
9: and Yamagata made the most of it. He recovered from injury, made changes to his training routine, and is now peaking at just the right time. While Yamagata remains focused, he says the controversy surrounding these games, fueled by health and safety concerns, has been
4: tough to deal with.
12: This is a challenging time, and there's a part of me that feels the pressure. But I hope that doing our best at these Olympics is our way of helping the world become slightly brighter. I think there is value in sports, and I'm trying to find a meaning in my running and stick to that. New
9: meaning and perhaps a new perspective, after years of uncertainty.
12: It's been a really tough road getting to the Tokyo Olympics, and I overcame a lot of challenges, but I want to achieve my goals and give it my best shot. That goal is to win
9: gold and proudly represent Japan right here at home. Although COVID-19 cases in the capital are surging, Olympic organizers maintain that through a strict set of COVID-19 countermeasures that they will be able to hold a safe and secure Olympic Games. Now, For months, organizers have kept an upbeat tone in an effort to generate excitement and cement a positive legacy for these Games. But to this point, based on a continued lack of public support, it's clear that that effort is failing. Blake Estig, CNN, Tokyo.
1: And finally, on First Move, he's an officer and a gentleman, and he made someone very happy this Bastille Day. This French trainee soldier made the ultimate salute to love by proposing to his partner. He got down on one knee on the Champs Elysees just moments before he took part in the Bastille Day military parade in Paris. Very sweet. And congratulations to them both. We love a bit of love here on First Move that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next, and I'll see you tomorrow, as always.